Pushkin. Did you know some travel credit cards offer 10 times points on your spending? Don't miss out on big rewards for your next trip. NerdWallet lets you compare smart travel credit cards side by side, curated by an expert team of finance nerds. What could future you do with better travel rewards? A free flight? A room upgrade? Don't wait to make smart financial decisions. Compare and find smarter credit cards, savings accounts, and more today at nerdwallet.com. Reminder, credit is subject to lender approval and terms apply. NerdWallet. Finance smarter. The most innovative companies are going further with T-Mobile for Business. The PGA of America is helping lower scores and elevate fan experiences with AI coaching tools and 5G-connected cameras. AAA is getting more drivers back on the road fast with location telematics. And the Las Vegas Grand Prix is powering race day operations with 5G connectivity, giving fans an experience at the speed they deserve. This is Accelerating Innovation with T-Mobile for Business. Take your business further at tmobile.com slash now. Musora is your access to online music lessons for guitar, piano, drums, and singing. This is your chance to reignite some old musical passions or pick up an instrument for the first time. Connect with more than 100 of the world's best teachers and musicians. You'll get seven days totally free to try it out. And then it's just $30 a month, less than a single private lesson. I mean, why do we do Broken Record? Not just because we love hearing from great musicians. We do it because we think that there is something beautiful about the appreciation of music. Don't you think we need more of that in our lives these days? That's the mission of Musora, to inspire, educate, and connect musicians. Enjoy unlimited personal support, weekly live streams, student lesson plans. It's like having a personal music teacher, only much, much better. Just go to musora.com, M-U-S-O-R-A.com, to start a new musical journey today. Hey, everyone. Today we'll hear Rick Rubin talk to one of his all-time favorite vocalists, Tom Jones. In the mid-60s, when artists like the Beatles and Bob Dylan were starting a counterculture revolution, Tom Jones was getting his start singing old standards and 50s rock and roll at clubs around South Wales. Jones signed his first record deal in 64 and went on to release now timeless hits like It's Not Unusual and Green Green Grass of Home. With his soulful baritone and unique interpretation of American R&B and gospel, Jones became a mainstay at hip cabaret clubs in London, New York, and Vegas. It became commonplace for female fans to throw their underwear on stage during his performances. Of course, that later became a trope of the sex symbol crooner. On today's episode, Tom Jones shares stories with Rick from his remarkable career, including the first time he met Elvis on a movie set in Hollywood, and the night he turned down an invitation to join Little Richard on stage in L.A. out of fear he'd be deported. He also talks about why he thought Burt Bacharach's lyrics to What's New Pussycat were a joke the first time he heard them. This is Broken Record, liner notes for the digital age. I'm Justin Richmond. Here's Rick Rubin and Tom Jones. The last time I saw you was, I want to say, seven, seven or eight years ago in Las Vegas backstage after you, after you sang. And, uh, that's right. It was a beautiful night for me. I guess it was a regular night for you because that's what you do all the time. <laughs> it, was, it was a long time ago, though. It was longer than because I haven't been to Vegas now for about 12 years. Could it be that long? I can't believe it. Yeah. Amazing. I don't think you had done the Johnny Cash albums either. At that time. Really? I must have. And you hadn't, you hadn't done the, I know you hadn't done the Neil Diamond one. Really? Is that true? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Because I remember when the Neil Diamond one, I, I called him and said how, how good I thought the album was. And that's, it's, a, it's quite a while after I saw you. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That was a good one. I like that one too. Yeah, I love that album. I think it's the best album he's ever done. Wow. That's incredible. Yeah. I loved him since young, like you. You know, like like same era of I, I saw you guys both when I was a kid growing up on TV. Yep. And I got to see you perform when I was young. My parents brought me to see you at Westbury Music Fair on Long Island. So I saw right. you, yeah, probably sometime in the 70s, I would imagine. Would that make sense? Yep. 
But with Neil, you know, we started at the same time in the 60s. I remember meeting him in London in 65, you know, when I, when I, when I had It's Not Unusual and uh, he, was, he was writing then for different people, you know. Yeah. I think he had done something with Lulu. Yeah, he'd done a few things with British artists at the time. Tell me about the world of music. Was 1963 when you started? Yeah, when I went, I went to London in 63. I recorded uh, in 64. I did a, a, a song called Chills and Fever, which was, a, <laughs> which was a sort of a rock and roll thing because in those days, Peter Sullivan, the guy that became uh, my recording manager, he saw me singing in dance halls and, and clubs in Wales and I was doing basically 50s rock and roll. And uh, so he thought that that would be the way to get me going, you know. Yeah, so he found this song called Chills and Fever, which was done by a guy called Ronnie Love, I think his name was. It was an R&B record, you know, and we sort of, we made it more into a rock and roll record. And I mean, it, it just, it, it sort of registered slightly, but nothing, it was a hit in Australia. I remember that. <laughs> so then we had to rethink, you know, and uh, and I was doing demos in, in London. Gordon Mills was my manager, and he was writing for Leeds Music. And uh, so I used to do demos for different things. And then he wrote, uh, It's Not Unusual, and I did the demo on it. It was for Sandy Shaw, really, who had some hit records at the time. And uh, so when I heard it, I said, this is it. You know, this sounds like a hit record to me. Yeah. And then Peter Sullivan uh, said, well, if you're going to do it, you know, we got to pump it up because it was a milder song. You know, it's a sort of a Brazil 66 type feel to it. But I was basically 50s rock and roll music. That's what I lived, really, <laughs> you know, before that. But then you get strange with recordings, uh, as I'm sure you know, but it sort of starts to lay up a path, you know, because I did It's Not Unusual with Brass, People wanted, or the record company anyway, Decca Records, wanted more of the same. And then Bert Bacharach did uh, What's New Pussycat for the Woody Allen film. And then I go again, you know, with a, with a pop record. And I all the time I wanted to do like Wilson Pickett, you know, and uh, <laughs> I was into soul music by that time. But I could never get uh, an original song, you know, if I was going to do a, a soul type thing. It, was, it would have to be covers, you know, so so what's the pussycat? Then we didn't know what to do after that. So then I did the green, green grass of home. So it's always different things sort of pop up. Originally, it was more 50s rock and roll for you. Yeah, oh yeah. It, when I was doing the clubs and, and pubs and dance halls in Wales, where I come from, uh, South Wales, that's what I was doing. You know, it was Jerry Lee Lewis and Elvis Presley and Fats Domino, Chuck Berry, Little Richard... They they were the ones, you know. And when I listen to the record, those records today still sound fantastic. Yeah, Little Richard records sound like they're going to explode. They're so exciting. Oh, you know, to get away from those, sometimes I, I'll try and listen to the radio nowadays, you know, which which there's some, there's some decent stuff. But once I start to start playing 50s rock and roll music, I got a, I got a job to get away from it Yeah, as far as listening is concerned. And Boogie Records, you know, I love Boogie Woogie, you know, Pete Johnson and Albert Hammonds and uh, Mead Lux Lewis, Professor Longhair, you know, those, those people. I love that, that kind of stuff. How about the blues? Have, has the blues been a, a part of your repertoire as well, listening? Yeah, well, when I was young, you see, I was always listening to voices. I, I liked the way people sounded. I think that's what it was. So, like, when I heard Mahalia Jackson sing... I thought, my God, you know, those those gospel songs came to life. I mean, I we were singing those songs in chapel, in the Presbyterian chapel. Same songs. You know, a lot of them were, but uh, not like that. So that got me interested in black gospel music and, uh, and rhythm and blues, you know. But mostly uh, New Orleans type, you know, I loved Louis Armstrong. I loved that uh, stuff that was coming out of uh, New Orleans. Uh, the blues, as far as the blues were concerned, Lead Belly I'd heard, but my favorite was always Big Bill Brunsey, was always more musical to me than some of the other ones that came a little later, like Muddy Waters, you know, and 
there was more of sort of electric blues as with Big Bill Brunsey, he was playing acoustic, acoustic guitar and like finger style, you know, more than, uh, but very rhythmic. You know, he was very rhythmic within himself, just playing and, and, and singing. So I, as far as the blues was concerned, I would say Big Bill Brunsey was, was the one that I was listening to there. Have, have you ever considered making a gospel album? Uh, yeah, well, when I did Praise and Blame, you know, with uh, with Ethan Johns, we did we did some Ain't No Grave, you know, yeah. going to hold my body down. And we did quite a few gospel songs Beautiful. then. But I've never actually recorded a whole album of gospel songs, which it could happen. And the same thing with blues. Yeah. There's a lot of Big Bill Brunsey stuff that I would love to... Uh, I would love to do. There's a lot of possibilities. Yeah. It's, it's always, as you know, it's where do I, where do I go from here? Yes. You know, where, where what? <laughs> but you've got to have some kind of theme. You've got to have some kind of an idea to link the stuff together as opposed to just going in there and recording a, a mishmash of, of material. Because I like so many different types of, uh, of songs as well, you see? Yeah. You know, I mean, I used to love Frankie Lane, you know, when Frankie Lane... Came out, so I like those big, sort of soulful ballads, you know, like I believe. Yeah. But then again, that that's of a gospel nature as well. You see, in the early days in Wales, what was the music scene like? You were of rock and roll age. It's funny because the perception of you is not in the world of rock and roll. No, I know, I know. <laughs> but as I was saying, recording those songs in my early recordings, it's not unusual, you know. And then what's your pussycat? It it sort of takes you. Uh, that way, but my lo- my love has always been fifties rock and roll music before anything else. Yeah. yeah, Jerry Lee Lewis is still Jerry Lee Lewis. Yeah, and and I uh, suppose age wise, you were probably contemporary with the Beatles, no? Yeah, well, the same thing. See, we were all uh, the Beatles, the Stones, uh, Van Morrison, Joe Cocker. We, we were all listening to those early, you know, fifties rock and roll music. Yeah. When when anybody has asked. What was the first rock and roll record? It's always rock around the clock from Blackboard Jungle, yeah. you know, from the movie. And, and all, everybody will tell you the same thing, of our age. And, and, and then when I, when I realized that they, when I'd asked musicians about them later on, that things were miked uh, individually, which they had never done with a rhythm section before. That's why they sounded so hot. So, you know, I, I remember asking um, Count Basie about it. You know, I said... What do you think of rock and roll music? You know, why uh, do you think it sounded so different? He said because they spent more money on it. He said this all comes from rhythm and blues, really. Yeah. But those early uh, black records that were being made, they didn't have the money to spend, you know, to make them sound like the records then that came later. Like when when Little Richard then came on the scene, they were black records still, you know, but they sounded much better than the earlier records, you know, that uh, the black entertainers recorded. Living in Wales, was it hard to hear this music? How did you get to hear it? Yeah, well, on the radio, you see, the BBC, uh, they they had to play everything because we didn't have any regional stations. You know, we didn't have a gospel station or or a country station. It was all the BBC. And then there was a... A station that came out of Germany called Radio Luxembourg mm-hmm. that you could get uh, if you had the right wireless, you know, the right radio set. You could you could pick that up, and they they played more blues, gospel, country than rock and roll. And when I heard something, and I thought, what is that? You know, why is that different? Because you know, I was born in 1940, so the big band music was still being played. Mm-hmm. You know, and, and Frank Sinatra and, and those singers that sang with bands. You know, they were big bands that were that were being... Uh, so that was the music. And Vera Lynn, you know, in the war and after the war, those uh, songs that Vera Lynn would sing. So they were the things that I heard. But then you get that occasional American R&B, you know, or, or blues record that would come on uh, or, or gospel you know, and, and I knew it was different. And and a lot of people of my age, we were we were being influenced by that. You know, when you heard it, you think, that's different. Why is that different? Why does that sound like that? Who is that? And, uh, and you look you look into it then. 
what were the other big voices from your youth that you just felt like these are the voices that are inspiring? Well, Frankie Lane was definitely one. And um, Billy Daniels and Old Black Magic, you know, when he sang Old Black Magic, uh, I get I get a kick out of you. Yeah. You know, that was different. That He sang it different to what Frank Sinatra did. Billy Eckstein, when he did uh, I Get a Kick, it was like... You know, he meant that he was really getting a kick. He was, <laughs> you know, he had the way with, with the words. So, uh, oh, and Tennessee Ernie Ford. When yeah. I first heard those boogie records, the Tennessee Ernie Ford did, the Catfish Boogie and Black Betty Boogie. And I think they were the beginning of that rock and roll sound, yeah. you know, that was being done because it was a heavily piano. I think it was uh, Moon Mulligan was playing piano, I think, on, the, on those uh, records. So that they were definitely different, but they were boogie records, you see. Were you a fan of any of the previous generation singers like the Sinatras uh, that came before rock and roll as well, or not so much? Not so much. Uh, afterwards, funnily enough, I learned to, uh, to appreciate Sinatra when I got older. Mm-hmm. No, I, I, wasn't, I wasn't a fan of, of, of that music. Mm-hmm. You know, rock and roll, when rock and roll kicked in, it was like a breath of fresh air. You know, it was like... Oh my God! You know this is this is tremendous, and, <laughs> and all the musicians, you know, and singers at the time hated it. Yeah. You know, the, the established singers because they couldn't do it. Yeah, you know, and it's a strange thing because I was talking to musicians when I was in, in the fifties. I was working in a glove factory making gloves, and all these glove cutters, these guys that were making the gloves by hand. They were musicians, you know, they were amateur musicians playing in dance bands and everything. And rock and roll would come on the radio and I would be like with the ruler, you know, banging the, this desk I used to work at to do one, two, three o'clock. It was like, Jesus. So they said, what is that crap? You know, and I said, well, what's the matter with you? It's tremendous. And they were trying to get me to listen to, you know, other other music. And I said, no, no, this, this is it. And uh, they said, well, it's, it's, it's nothing. It's easy to do. Then I would go and watch them in these bands that they were playing in. And they would try and play them, you know, and they, they couldn't do it. They just could not do it. It's a strange thing. Elvis Presley used to talk about it when he first went on television to try and get those TV bands uh, in America, like the Dorsey Brothers. When he went on there, they couldn't play it. Yeah. Uh, Quincy Jones was telling me he said they it wasn't happening. Yeah, and until he until he brought his uh, his rhythm section in, you know. So it's a strange thing. And boogie, you know, boogie music is the same. You know, a lot of piano players they don't think much of boogie woogie, but get them to play it. Yeah, it's the it's a feel thing. It's like if you don't feel it, it's not it's not about playing it right. It's about feeling it. And same. It, the, the way you sing, even though you have essentially what feels like an operatic voice, there's a groove always when you're singing. That's why I asked about the blues earlier. It's like it feels like there's a, a grooviness always Yeah, in your interpretations, you know? There's always a blues. There's a blues element on, on all the songs that I've done. Yeah. You know, even the ballads, there, there's, there, I tend to lean towards bluesy notes, you know, whenever I can— inject them in there yeah no it sounds more like you and it makes it feel more personal and it makes it feel more soulful and more from the heart than just singing the notes of the song you know yeah well that's that's what i felt about a lot of the singers that came prior to to that you know the the big band things and and the songs didn't didn't register with me except for the ballads i mean i always loved um, my funny valentine and i always loved autumn leaves your recording of Autumn Leaves is staggering. Oh, thank you. I love it. I was 24 then. <laughs> so good. Yeah. Well, you see, that first album that I did, you know, Along Came Jones, I, I had to do that song. I always loved that song since I was a child. And uh, But then, you know, Memphis, Tennessee is also on there, you see? Yeah. And and I Need Your Loving, you know, it was like, whoa, 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 whoa. You know, it's like on the same album. Yeah. How how old were you when you went to London? Uh, I was 23, and then I recorded that. I was 24. And how did it work out for you to get signed? And tell me tell me the first experience going to London. 
Well, when I uh, I did I did an audition. You know, they'd heard me sing uh, demos. You know, we were sending demos to different uh, record companies. And uh, Decca Records, Peter Sullivan, he uh, he heard uh, the demo that I sent and uh, and asked me would I come to London and do an audition, you know, which I did. And he, and he said, fine, we'll sign you if you fancy it, you know, for three singles. Mm-hmm. It's like three, three, three strikes and you're out. You know, it's like you get three. Yeah, so we did Chills and Fever. Because he'd he'd heard me singing, you know, and saw me in these clubs when he came to see me and thought a rock and roll record would be the way to go. So that was the first one. And then It's Not Unusual was the second record. So then I was was flying then. Amazing. And that that essentially has been, I I guess it's the song most associated with you still to this day of everything, I think. Yeah, yeah, it is. Well, Well, I think maybe... Because I had a TV show in the late 60s, early 70s, and we always opened the show singing that live. You know, I, I sang it every time live on the show. So I think people heard that, you know, more than, than anything else. Because anytime anybody sees me, if they're going to sing something at me, you know, it'll be, it's not unusual. Tell me about the TV experience. What was that like, having a TV show? It was fantastic because I could then get people on that I, that I wanted like Jerry Lee Lewis was on one of the shows. Little Richard was on the shows. And then a lot of Motown action. Stevie Wonder had just come on the scene. Great. Ray Charles came on. Janis Joplin came on. And uh, she she wouldn't do variety shows in those days. You know, she said, uh, I'm only doing it because it's you. Wow. And I said, well, thank you. And we did, a, we did a hell of a duet together, I remember. Great. Did you do duets with everyone who came on? Everybody, yes. Wow, fantastic. Yeah, it was tremendous. And Wilson Pickett, you know, we did Hey Jude and Barefootin'. Great. And Ray Charles, you know, and yeah, everybody, everybody that was around in those days. But I had a push for Little Richard and Jerry Lee Lewis, you know, because they said, oh, 50s rock and roll. And I said, look, please, once the show was a success, I had more of of a say in it. I mean, I try. I wanted to get Chuck Berry. I wanted to. I wanted to get Fats Domino. You know, I wanted a lot of people. But if they weren't selling records at the time, it was it was difficult to get them on. We have to take a quick break, but we'll be right back with more from Rick Rubin and Tom Jones. Reboot your credit card with Apple Card, the only credit card designed for iPhone. It gives you up to three percent daily cash back on every purchase. Plus, Apple Card has no fees, not even hidden ones. Apply for Apple Card now in the Wallet app on iPhone. Apple Card issued by Goldman Sachs Bank USA, Salt Lake City branch, subject to credit approval. Variable APRs for Apple Card range from 19.24% to 29.49% based on credit worthiness. Rates as of February 1st, 2024. Terms and more at applecard.com. Hello, hello, Malcolm Gladwell here from Revisionist History. If you've watched a professional tennis match recently, you'll know that fans had this amazing new tool at their disposal. It was created by the consulting company Infosys and the Association of Tennis Professionals. It's an immersive 3D viewing experience for tennis fans, which allows them to watch matches from new angles, get real-time statistics, and better understand the inner workings of the game and its athletes. Basically, a completely new, data-driven way to appreciate a tennis match. It's been a huge hit, and I'm proud to say that the Infosys Tennis Platform earned first place in the Customer Experience category at the Unconventional Awards from T-Mobile for Business, an event held at Mobile World Congress in Las Vegas that celebrates customers who've boldly innovated for the sake of meaningful change. And I think it's important to point out that innovation like this doesn't just require a great idea and exploit some great underlying technology. It takes courage. Because tennis is a game with a long history and some pretty powerful traditions. I mean, you can only wear white at Wimbledon. Still, it's the 21st century. And here was an idea that said we can dramatically change the way a fan watches a match. We can feed them data. We can allow them to see things they could never see before with the naked eye, or even conventional camera angles. If you want to turn a world upside down, you have to have a pretty strong backbone. That's a lot of what the T-Mobile for Business Unconventional Awards are all about. Finding people and companies who show that kind of boldness. I encourage you to enter. It's a fantastic event, 
and a great way to be recognized for your brave, outside-the-box thinking in front of the industry's most influential leaders. And an even better way to say, I told you so. You can enter by July 31st at tmobile.com slash unconventionalawards. That's tmobile.com slash unconventionalawards. See you there. Snag a job is where America goes to hire with the deepest talent pool in hourly hiring. With access to over 6 million active hourly workers, Snagajob is the all-in-one solution for hiring high-quality employees who can cover all your needs, on-demand, attempt to hire, part-time or full-time. You name the position, warehouse worker, retail associate, grocery store clerk, fitness trainer, baker, stylist, bellhop, podcast producer. Yeah, Snagajob's got a worker for that. With their easy-to-use platform, you're able to seamlessly post and fill available positions quickly with a dedicated customer support team to provide all the help you need along the way. Kind of nice knowing you have a talent pool like that in your own backyard, right? Snagajob is the partner you need to keep your business running smoothly. Visit snagajob.com or text snag to 242424 to talk to an expert. Snagajob.com, where America goes to hire. We're back with more of Rick Rubin's conversation with Tom Jones. How has the live experience changed from the time you were young to now? Just in terms of what's it like? What was it like when you started? What was monitoring like? What were the audiences like? What what were the venues like? Talk about all of the different <laughs> things you've seen over the years because you've you've seen it change completely from the early days, I imagine. Oh yeah. Well, growing up in Wales. You know, I, I, I would sing, first of all, in school, you know, and in chapel. You know, that's where I, that's where I learned to get in front of an audience. Uh, gatherings, you know, weddings and parties in the house. And I come from a, a large family with uh, a lot of uh, aunties and uncles and cousins. And we all were all singers, really. So there was a lot of singing going on in South Wales. And everybody loved singing, you know, and there were a lot of singers. So I would go and watch them uh, when I was old enough to go into the local club, a workman's club. And there were singers that would get up there and sing songs, Frankie Lane songs, you know, and songs like My Mother's Eyes. You know, there was this big rugby player that used to get up there. And on a Sunday night, me and my teenage, <laughs> you know, we'd say to, oh, come on, Glenog. His name was Glenog Evans. Great name, huh? Come on, give us a song, Glenog. You know, sing My Mother's Eyes. You know, sort of half making fun of him. Well, by the time he finished, there wasn't a dry eye in the place. You know, I mean, this fella could like, I mean, he'd, he'd do it. You know, he'd just stand there and sing the shit out of My Mother's Eyes. And you think, oh my God, that's it. So I got that, and then uh, listening, as I say, to to early um, to the blues and, and to gospel and stuff on the radio. You know, that's what I was listening to. So I would I would incorporate that sometimes when I would get up and in. Uh, but I would always like, for instance, when I took a, a rock and roll band into the, a, a workman's club. This was in the late fifties. They had never seen electric guitars in in these clubs wow. and, and 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 drums, yeah. you know. But I was sing I was singing with this local band in a YMCA. So I said to them, "Do you fancy coming into one of these workingmen's clubs?" Because I've I used to play guitar and sing, you know, just like that uh, in these clubs. Would you fancy it? Oh well, we've never done it. I said, "Well, let's try it." So we go into this workingmen's club, and they had a habit if they didn't like you they would shout, pay him off, which means pay you not to play. Yeah. Just pay them and get them out of here. So when we were walking in with the amplifiers, you know, and the guitars and the drums, oh, Jesus Christ, you know, we don't want any of this crap. But I'd been there before, you see. I'd been to these clubs, you know, and I'd get up and say, no, look, uh, fellas, you know, please, Give us a shot here because you know me. Oh, yes, you are lovely, Tommy. Tommy's got a lovely voice, but we don't want this rock and roll. <laughs> so, so I said to the band the first time I remembered it so well, and I said, look, we'll start off with I Believe, funnily enough. Yes, I perfect. said, we'll do, we'll, do, we'll do I Believe. We'll do My Mother's Eyes. 
we'll do we'll do my Yiddish mama because I, I heard Billy Daniels do it. So we would do these things, and then when everybody was like, yes, yes, we get it, we, we love it, all of a sudden, that, 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 you shake my nerves and you rattle them, you know what I mean? It was like, <laughs> and they were like in, you know? So that was it. Yeah. And then in one night, I remember, uh, from this pay them off when we first walked in, uh, about halfway through the night, the fellow that booked us there, he said... If I call the police station and get an extension on the liquor, you know, the liquor laws only went to like 11 o'clock. He said, if I could get the liquor law to 12, would you play until midnight? Wow. I said, yeah, if, if, you, if you pay us a few, you know, <laughs> a few more pounds. So it was all in one night from pay them off to could you could you stay till midnight? I move, move all the tables and chairs back and they all had a dance. You know, so we took rock and roll music into these workingmen's clubs, and then they would have they'd have dances on different nights of the week, and they were starting then to get a lot of younger people coming in, because it was a mothers and you know mums and dads place to start with, which you wouldn't get a lot of teenagers going into. So then they would start to come into these places. So we built up a reputation of playing pop music, really. You know. But but a lot of fifties rock and roll, it was in there, and they were loving it. So cool! What a great story. I love I love hearing about the uh, and you ended up turning them onto rock and roll, and and they ended up loving it. Yeah, I, and I and I I thought to myself, if it's as long as it's presented properly, you know what I mean. As long as you go into their place rather than try to get those you know older people to come into a dance hall with a, with a band playing all records being played rock and roll records you know they they wouldn't be they wouldn't they wouldn't want to go and do that but go to them with it yeah and and present it in a way as long as you can do some ballads as well you know as long as you can do stuff that they can understand then you can do Johnny Be Good or, you know yeah what were the first performances you did once you were in London what were those like uh, well, it was I was doing them mostly in South Wales, and then came and, and did the the record contract. You know, got the records out. Then I was playing quite a lot of uh, American bases because the Americans were still uh, in in Britain. Uh, you know, in in the early sixties, you know, Air Force bases especially. So we would go and and, and play these places. So I became very popular in these uh, American Air Force bases. When I had it's not unusual. When, well, even before that, uh, before I had the, the a hit record, we would play them, and so I knew a lot of American songs. You see, which the, the GIs loved. So I, I was, you know, we, we sort of built up a bit of a reputation in these American uh, servicemen's clubs. What was the first time you came to the United States? That was to do an Ed Sullivan show. Oh, fantastic! Yeah, in the early '65. It was amazing. It's Not Unusual came out in January the 22nd, 1965. And it was number one by March the 1st, you know, in, in Britain. And it was released in the States. And it went to number 10 uh, on, on uh, the 100, top 100. So then they booked me on uh, the Ed Sullivan show. And I became, he liked me. You know, so I think I did like six Ed Sullivan shows. Wow, great. Yeah, in, in 65. And, and TV had gone to color, so they couldn't transmit in color from New York. So the Ed Sullivan show had to go to Los Angeles to transmit in color. So then I went to, uh, to L.A. I met Elvis Presley. Wow, how was that? <laughs> oh, tremendous. I mean, when I used to sing in these clubs in Wales, right, and I would do Elvis Presley songs, of course. And my friends used to say, wow, Tom, you know, you sing that as good as Elvis Presley. I said, well, I'll tell him that. <laughs> and they said, oh, come on. Sure. You know, <laughs> I said, I said, I got a feeling that I'm going to meet Elvis Presley. I had this feeling. Yeah. So when I went to Paramount Studios in LA to talk about a, a song for a movie, and they said, Elvis is here today and he would like to meet you. Jesus, I mean, this was in September of 65. Wow. You know, and, and I said, my God, I didn't even know that he knew anything about me. So I went on to the set and he was in a mock helicopter. He was doing this, the trades fair, I think the movie was, with this little girl in this helicopter. And um, I'm standing in the back of the set 
close set in this hangar with the Memphis Mafia and uh, they stop filming and he waves, you know, so I'm like just standing there and they said to me, Elvis is waving at you, you know, I'm, oh, really? <laughs> so I waved back and I had a song out at the time. It was my third single. It was a ballad called With These Hands and Elvis Presley come out of the, the helicopter and he's walking towards me singing with these hands. And I thought, my God, if the boys back home could see me now, wow. you know. And he did it like Elvis Presley, you know, he pointed at me at the same time. You know what I mean? The way Elvis used to put yeah. his hand up, you know. And he's like, with his hands, <laughs> I will cling to you. And I thought, my God, here comes Elvis Presley singing my song. <laughs> it was like, it was surreal, unbelievable. Unbelievable. It sounds like a dream, what you're describing. A dream. Yeah. It was like a dream. And he said to me, how the hell do you sing like that? <laughs> Honestly. <laughs> and I said, well, <laughs> it's listening to people like you. He said, yeah, but I was brought up with it. You know, he said, I, I was going into black gospel churches as a boy. Do you have any black gospel churches in Wales? <laughs> I said, no. You know, the only black people are down in, in, uh, in Cardiff, in Tiger Bay, you know. But I said it's it's from the radio that I've that I've heard these songs, and uh, he, he couldn't believe that I sound like I sound coming from where I came from. Yes, you know. Yes. Unless you were born there, you know. Unless you were born there, he couldn't understand it. Yeah, but in the same way, he got to hear it by being there. You got to hear it by hearing it on the radio. But it was still, it was still coming through one way or another. The inspiration yeah. was there, and you were exposed to it, and you got to feel it. Yes. I knew the difference when I would hear, hear Mahalia Jackson sing, you know, I, I would know the difference yes. by the sound of her voice. So I was attracted to it. So just like Elvis was more attracted to black gospel churches as he was to white, you know, so you've got to be attracted to it in order to to know what it, what it is. And whether it's on the radio or whether it's live, you've got to go to and, and think, well, what is, what is that? You know, why is that sounding so wonderful and uplifting and unreal that they sound like they mean it? When you when you came to the U.S. to do the Ed Sullivan Show, would you also do live performances for audiences as well? I couldn't bring my band, you see, so that was a problem. I so I had nobody to, to, to do shows with, really. I remember uh, the first time I met Little Richard was in 65, and I'd seen him do shows in England, mm -hmm. you know, before. But I was in Los Angeles uh, doing the Ed Sullivan show. So I said to my manager, I think I'll stay for a couple of weeks, you know, just to see what's happening in L.A. And so he said to me, well, look, your visa has run out now. You know, you only get a visa for a week to do the Ed Sullivan show. Now, you know, if you're going to stay any longer than that, you, you're not on a visitor's visa. You're not, you don't have, you're illegally in the country, right? Mm-hmm. So he said, for God's sake, don't get up in a club or something and, and draw attention to yourself. So I said, no, okay, I won't. So I go to see Little Richard. He's playing a club just off Sunset. So I'm backstage with him and we're chatting away and it was great. And so he introduces me when he's on stage and he asked me to get up on the stage. And I wanted it because I knew every Little Richard song. So he said, come on, let's do this one. And I said, I, I, can't, I can't, I can't, you know, I can't do it, honestly. I would love to. And I still think of that now. To this day, wow. I think, my God, you know, why didn't I just do it? You know, but I was so scared uh, of, of, of uh, the immigration, you know, <laughs> locking me up or something. Yeah. But then I got him on my TV show, you see. Then we did it. Yeah. You know, when it really mattered, you know, that the millions of people could then see it. So so I got my I got my wish at the end, but I would have loved to have just done that with him that night, you know, in in 65. Where did you do your TV show from? Uh from London, just north of London. Great. Uh yeah, Elstree Studios and uh, which is funny where we do the voice from now. You know, I'm I'm a coach on on the on the voice UK. Yeah. And we do it from the same place. Fantastic. You know, I thought, my God, after all this time, you know, because that was like 69, 70, 71 when I did uh, This Is Tom Jones. So uh, it's still a pain in the ass to get there, you know, <laughs> <laughs> on the road. But it's it's great that I'm still I'm still doing it, you know. So I always think of that. I think if somebody had told me back then yeah. that I would be doing, still going to the studios 
in Elstree now. It's, it's a great feeling. It's, it's a great, I love it. So cool. If you're up for it, let's listen to my f- very favorite of your songs. Never Gonna Fall in Love is my favorite of, of them all. Oh, thank you. And let's listen to that together and then you can tell me anything you want to tell me about that one. <laughs> okay. I've been in love so many times Thought I knew the score But now you've treated me sort of wrong I can't take anymore And it looks like I'm never gonna fall in love So where'd that song come from? Uh, well, it, it was originally a song called uh, I'm Never Gonna Cease My Wandering, which was from uh, the Depression, you know, in the 30s. And uh, I knew the song in Wales, in one of these workmen's clubs, as a fellow used to get up and sing it, I'm Never Gonna Cease My Wandering. And I thought, what a great song that is. Yeah. You know, and um, 
So then I did some shows with a fellow called Lonnie Donegan. Yes. In uh, in England. Skiffle. Yeah, Skiffle, yeah. Which was really old sort of lead belly type blues, you know, they called it Skiffle. So I did some shows with him and he said, look, I've just written a song and you would sing the shit out of it. So he played me a demo that he had done on it. Uh, never going to fall in love again. And I said, well, that's never going to cease my wandering. He said, yes, it is. But he said, there's no chorus in never going to cease my wandering. I see. You know, he said, we changed the words and then put that fall in love. Mm -hmm. That wasn't in in the original. That wasn't there, which is the most commercial part of the song. And I said, oh, I got to do it. I'm going to try this. And so I said to Peter Sullivan, Lonnie Donegan has written this song and I want to do it. Okay, let's do it. So we did. And then when, when I did it, we used to get an acetate yeah. to take home, you know, to play it at home. And I took it home and um, we only had the one, right? So my wife took it to my manager's house. We lived close uh, in England. She said, this is what Thomas just done. Well, they were fighting over this acetate. <laughs> My wife and my my manager's wife <laughs> to keep it that night. And my wife says, "You know, it's my husband singing it." She said, "Yeah, but my husband manages it." <laughs> so there was a big fight over this one acetate because that was the only copy that we had at that point. So to get two women fighting over, you know, over a song, I thought it was a good sign. Well, this is good. This is yeah. This is gonna be a hit. And of course, it was. Thank God. Yeah. It's such a great song, the energy of it. And and yes, yeah. the hookiness of the chorus. It's got a real sing-along chorus. Yeah. And the vocal performance is just stunning. And you save the, the big note for the ends, almost like a Roy Orbison type. I mean, you're not singing like him, but but the drama yeah, of I know building up yeah, the structure. to the big note at the end where you, you, can't, like, you can't think it could get any more dramatic. And then you go there. It's so <laughs> beautiful. What a great song. Yeah, thank you. We'll be right back after a break with more from Tom Jones and Rick Rubin. As listeners to this show, you probably consider yourself pretty smart. But how smart is your wallet? When you're looking to upgrade your wallet, it's time to turn to Nerd Wallet. Their expert team of nerds has the financial smarts to help you find the right financial products for you. Before Nerd Wallet, you might have paid for vacations with whatever was in your wallet. But you could have been missing out on miles you didn't even know you were leaving on the table. Now you can get a new card with more miles and more upgrades. What could future you do with more travel rewards? A hotel upgrade? Lounge access? Wherever you go next, make it happen with a smarter travel card. Don't wait to make smart financial decisions. Compare and find smarter credit cards, savings accounts, and more today at nerdwallet.com. NerdWallet. Finance smarter. As with all cards, credit is subject to lender approval and terms apply. Hello, hello. This is Malcolm Gladwell from Revisionist History. Let me tell you an unconventional story about a healthcare group that wanted to improve their efficiency. Boston Children's Hospital. They were already a leading pediatric facility. Their patient outcomes, workflows, and delivery of care were already great. But they wondered, how can we make it better? So the hospital got to work. Their idea was to build what they called clinical mobility meaning a system which would allow their staff to access information and interact with patients on mobile devices anywhere in the hospital. And what made that possible? 5G. The hospital rebuilt their entire system with 5G technology at its core. That infrastructure now supports thousands of phones and tablets so practitioners can communicate with patients on a whole new level. Boston Children's also made sure the system could flex and scale to handle medical advancements like robotic surgery and virtual reality for training and research. This was worlds away from how they had previously operated. This innovative work hasn't gone unnoticed, first by patients, but also by their peers. Boston Children's was a first place winner in the industry category at last year's unconventional awards from T-Mobile for Business an event that celebrates customers who've dared to innovate for the sake of innovation. If the Boston Children's story rings a bell with you, if your team has asked the same questions about building a better business solution, I encourage you to enter this year's awards. It's a great way to be recognized for smart, disruptive thinking in front of some of your industry's most influential leaders. 
You can enter at tmobile.com slash unconventional awards. That's tmobile.com slash unconventional awards. I'll save you a seat. Snag a job is where America goes to hire with the deepest talent pool in hourly hiring. With access to over 6 million active hourly workers, Snagajob is the all-in-one solution for hiring high-quality employees who can cover all your needs, on-demand, temp-to-hire, part-time, or full-time. You name the position, warehouse worker, retail associate, grocery store clerk, fitness trainer, baker, stylist, bellhop, podcast producer. Yeah, Snagajob's got a worker for that. With their easy-to-use platform, you're able to seamlessly post and fill available positions quickly with a dedicated customer support team to provide all the help you need along the way. Kind of nice knowing you have a talent pool like that in your own backyard, right? Snagajob is the partner you need to keep your business running smoothly. Visit snagajob.com or text snag to 424 to talk to an expert. Snagajob.com, where America goes to hire. We're back with the rest of Rick Rubin's conversation with Tom Jones. So talk more about live performances and where were the types of places you played once you started having success and anywhere in the world. Right. So it went from, I played these Air Force bases, American places, Mm -hmm. in and around London. And we would play then ballrooms, you know, dance halls. People that had hit records in those days would play uh, either theaters or dance halls. Uh, you know, one show a night. And some of them were on piers. You know, they used to have, you know, piers in uh, seaside resorts. Yeah. And you'd, ha- you'd have a dance hall at the end of the pier. Just like in the, st- in the States, they had the same thing. And so w- we would then go and play these uh, dance halls in the summertime, especially on the end of these uh, piers. But then we started getting interests coming from northern nightclubs in the north of England. So uh, my manager and my agent, you know, they said, we get a lot of requests from clubs, dance halls as well, and theatres as well. But these clubs now, you know, up in the north of England, they're putting on a lot of cabaret shows, which were like mini Vegas. When I went to Vegas, I saw, you know, the showrooms in, in Las Vegas, and they had things very similar, not as grand, but in, in the north of England. They had these nightclubs, you see, because they had casinos as well, you know, coming in there. So then I started playing these northern clubs. Well, they were like glorified workingmen's clubs that I had played in South Wales. So that's what, what happened. So my it, it's it's been a problem, maybe a nice problem, I don't know, but my, my audience has always been a wide variety of people, you see. Mm-hmm. So... I could play to kids, you know. Even in Wales, I could play a YMCA to teenagers uh, on a, on a on a Friday night and play a workingmen's club on a Saturday to adults. Yes. So the same thing basically has gone through my career. I would play the Talk of the Town, for instance, which was a huge nightclub in London in the sixties. And my agent, my American agent, came to see me there, and he said, "You got to play the Copacabana in New York. This is where it where it's at." So. I said, okay. So then I played the Copacabana. And they were saying to me, funnily enough, they said, uh, are you scared? You know, because it's like a lot of gangsters go in there. And I said, excuse me, if you've played, if you've sung to coal miners and their wives and girlfriends, you know, the mafia doesn't scare me. It's, the only difference is they got guns. You know, we didn't have guns. But to get over to those people... You know, you got to be able to deliver. So that was a big thing. In 68, I played the talk of the town in 67 in London. And then 68, I went into the Copa in New York. And it was tremendous, you know, to play a place where all these giants of American show business had played yes. before. Everyone. Yep. Then that led to the Flamingo in Vegas and uh, the Deauville in Miami. You know, so a lot of these uh, clubs then nightclubs. But then when my TV show hit, you know, it became so big that I started playing arenas. Wow. You know, basketball arenas, which people, people had never played before. Yes. You know, they'd never, they'd never had musical venues. Maybe uh, Madison Square Gardens, I think maybe was the only one 
but all the, all these big uh, basketball arenas then I started playing because the clubs got too small. Even though I was still playing Las Vegas, you know, I would still go back to Vegas, yes. which I used to moan about because I used to say, how come I can make as much money in one night, you know, playing a, a, an arena and I got to play, a, you know, a week, two shows a night in Las Vegas. But they said, well, you know, that's that's the way it is. Yeah. But there you go. <laughs> you do it. When you're young, you know, it's it's you get in front of, up in front of people whether it's uh, 2,000 or 20,000, you're, you're performing, and that's that's what I do. How did the um, audiences react to different songs in different parts of the world? Is it pretty consistent, or are there variations? It's about the, yeah, it's about the same. You know, I mean, I'm always aware if it's an English-speaking audience. Yes. If I, You know, if I'm in Britain or I'm in America or Australia or Canada, or you know, I'm aware of it. But all the European countries, you see all the different countries... They they love all all the stuff that I do. Yeah, you know. So I had a, a surprise that I had in the seventies when I went to Japan. Yep. So I said to to promoter, are there any songs you think would go over? You know, more in Japan than. Uh, and he said, Well, you have to do Danny Boy. I said, Danny Boy, because <laughs> I had done it on my TV show. You know, and they saw me doing Danny Boy, and and I said, Well, do the Japanese people understand? The story of, of the, and he said, it's the emotion. Wow. They feel your emotion when you sing it. Yeah. So that was a big surprise to me that that I had to keep Danny Boy <laughs> in, in the show, in in Japan especially. Yeah. Yeah. But when I play Israel, you know, my Yiddish mama in Israel <laughs> is fantastic. Fantastic. What's the part of your working life that you most enjoy? Uh, being on stage. That's the fun part. You know, yeah. that, that's the part... Like all roads lead to the stage. Yes. You know, everything that I do is, is it all sort of um, helps getting me to, uh, to getting the people in there, you know, so that I can go on. But to be on the stage g- giving it, you know, and receiving from the audience is a tremendous feeling. There's nothing else like it. It's like the closest thing to sex. You know, when you're going up the steps onto the stage, yes. you know, or, or just walking from the wings onto the stage is anticipation. It's the build-up before you make love. You know, and when you when you're actually, you know, when you when you're in it, it's it's like, and then the coming down afterwards. You know, the the relaxing part uh, after you do the show. Yeah. If I go to dinner after the show, the food tastes better. The the wine tastes wow. better. Everything beautiful is better after that show. Do you get nervous at all before going on stage? Well, as I say, like before sex, you know, before before making love, let's say. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> it's, yeah. You know, when you get that exciting feeling, uh, you know, and then you get at it, of course. And then uh, the only time if I get nervous is if I've if I've got a cold or something, you know, that I feel that I'm underpowered and will it work? You know, yeah. will my voice work as well as I want it to? Uh, so I'll get a bit nervous then. But no, excited, yes, but nervous, no. And how, how long does it take to come down after the show? Like, how soon can you sleep after a show? Oh, a long time. I, I, I'm a night owl anyway. I see. You know, so it, show business is perfect for me because I, I live at night anyway. I always have done ever since I was a kid. So it's, uh, it's great. You know, I, I like to be a, a awake at night. Yes. I think the world looks better at night. You know, when you're in a city, if you, if you go out into a city in the daytime, it's bedlam. You know, you go out at night, things are much calmer. Yeah, and it, most people are asleep, so there's less energy. Yeah. And it's a, it's a more peaceful world at night. Yes, I think so. So it's it's great, you know, to go to a restaurant and, you know, and, and just relax with some friends. And uh, it's, it's, that's, it's lovely. It's, it's a lovely feeling, the whole thing. And if I'm going to do a runner, you know, and get in a limousine and go somewhere else or come on, jump on a plane, whatever it is, it, it's just a great feeling when, when you've achieved that, uh, that show. Are you ever surprised by what songs people react to that you've sung? Yeah, going as big as, as they, they have. Yeah. You know, when, when I recorded The Green Green Grass of Home, I heard the Jerry Lee Lewis version. It was, I bought it on an album in 65 in the Colony Record Shop in New York, and it was called Country Songs for City Folk. And he was doing country songs of the day, you know, of that time. Yeah. And The Green Green Grass of Home was a Porter Wagner song. So he did that 
But that's the the first time I heard it was Jerry Lee Lewis doing it. So I thought, oh, I got to do that. You know, that's a great song. You know, a surprise thing. You know, the man is in a cell dreaming about all this, which I thought was tremendous. So I thought, well, let's try it. And it became a monster. You know, it became huge. Yeah which I, I didn't expect. I thought it was going to be a good record. And I think that was thanks to Les Reed as well, who did the arrangement because he, you know, he stretched it. Mm-hmm. He made it more of a pop record as opposed to a country uh, record, you know. Yeah, so I, I didn't expect that. Oh, and Watch the Pussycat. When I first heard that, when Bert Bacharach sang that and played it to me, you know, he played the piano and sang it live, I thought he was joking. I said, <laughs> you you know, you must be joking. I can't yeah. sing that. And he, so he demoed the record and he said, take it away, have a listen and live with it and see what you think. And then I went in and recorded it. I still didn't think that it was going to be anything. And then, of course, you know, it was the Woody Allen film. Yes. The film was a hit. The song was a hit. And there you go. It's a strange song. It's definitely a strange song. Oh, the chord changes. I mean, I never heard chord changes like that. You know, da 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 da. What the? You know what is this? It sounds like a like a German drinking song. You know, like a a beer hall song. That's right. Exactly. So you don't know. You know, you. I didn't. I didn't think that that was going to be as anywhere near what what happened to that. Is it as much fun making music now as it's been from the beginning for you? Oh, yeah, definitely. I think it's even more, you get more freedom now. As when I first started off, you'd get with an arranger, you know, you'd pick the songs, you'd, you'd, you'd set the key, you'd get the arrangement done. So all those things were done before you stepped into the studio. And then you'd have a three-hour session to do three songs. Yeah. And like the first hour was taken up by getting the balance, uh, and then you you know you you do the other two uh, after that. So you'd have to get three songs within three hours. Wow! And and studio time was very expensive. So they told yeah. me, you know, in the the record company. So it was different, and they they had a, a singles division, and then if you were selling. Uh, a lot of singles, then you uh, you could make an album. Then you'd go to the album section of of the record company. Uh, so they had two different um, two different sections, and then you'd have a bit more time. But still, you'd still have to try and get three songs in uh, three hours. Now, I'm going to be recording with Ethan Johns. Now you know, great. We're going to start off and go to the studio in the real world in in uh, Peter Gabriel's studio. In, in box in Wilshire, yeah. and which I've recorded many times. And then I, we'll, we'll live there. You know, we'll go in there for a few weeks yeah. and, uh, and start kicking stuff around, you know, with a rhythm section and, and, and see what happens. Do you ever love a song and then record it and feel like it's not right to, to release? Yeah, with Leonard Cohen, for instance, I wanted, I wanted to do a Leonard Cohen song, so, and I loved uh, I'm Your Man. So we went in and I thought, oh, I got to do this, you know. Yeah. You know, I'll do anything for you. You know, I'll be this and I'll be that. Whatever it is, I'm your man. And we were all set to do that. And then we tried it and it was okay, but it wasn't as good as I thought it would be. And then Ethan said, look, if you really like uh, Leonard Cohen, what about Tower of Song? And I said, let me listen. Well, when I heard it, I loved it. And so... We, we then t- tried it, you know, well, let's try it. And it was great. Ah, fantastic. Well, thank you so much for doing this. It's, a, it's such a pleasure. I'm a lifelong fan. And <laughs> uh, I continue listening. And anytime, and this was an opportunity for us to speak. And I went back and listened to a stuff that I haven't listened to recently. And again, every time I hear it, it blows my mind. So uh, thank you. Oh, good. Well, thank you. And coming from you, that's that's a compliment because I've loved the, the things that you've done, you know, the records that you've made. Tremendous. Thank you so much. All right, Rick. Take care. Thanks to Tom Jones for taking us through his incredible career. To hear more of our favorite Tom Jones songs, check out our playlist at brokenrecordpodcast.com. Be sure to subscribe to our YouTube channel at youtube.com slash brokenrecordpodcast where you can find all of our new episodes. You can follow us on Twitter at Broken Record. Broken Record is produced with help from Leah Rose, Jason Gambrell, Ben Tolliday, Eric Sandler, and Jennifer Sanchez with engineering help from Nick Chafee. Our executive producer is Mia Lobel. 
Broken Record is a production of Pushkin Industries. If you like this show and others from Pushkin, consider subscribing to Pushkin Plus. Pushkin Plus is a podcast subscription that offers bonus content and uninterrupted ad-free listening for $4.99 a month. Look for Pushkin Plus on Apple Podcast subscriptions. And if you like the show, please remember to share, rate, and review us on your podcast app. Our theme music's by Kenny Beats. I'm Justin Richmond. Musora is your access to online music lessons for guitar, piano, drums, and singing. This is your chance to reignite some old musical passions or pick up an instrument for the first time. Connect with more than 100 of the world's best teachers and musicians. You'll get seven days totally free to try it out. And then it's just $30 a month, less than a single private lesson. I mean, why do we do Broken Record? Not just because we love hearing from great musicians. We do it because we think that there is something beautiful about the appreciation of music. Don't you think we need more of that in our lives these days? That's the mission of Musora, to inspire, educate, and connect musicians. Enjoy unlimited personal support, weekly live streams, student lesson plans. It's like having a personal music teacher, only much, much better. Just go to musora.com, M-U-S-O-R-A.com, to start a new musical journey today. When you drive a vehicle so reliable it's backed by a 10-year, 100,000-mile limited warranty, you stop thinking about what you can't do and start doing what you never thought possible. Visit your local Kia dealer today to see what you're capable of in a vehicle that inspires confidence around every corner. Kia, movement that inspires. Call 800-333-4KIA for details. Always drive safely. Limited inventory available. Warranties include 10-year, 100,000-mile powertrain and 5-year, 60,000-mile basic. Warranties are limited. See retailer for details. It all started with two federal agents who heard a rumor. She mentioned, well, there is this alleged murder to have taken place. There was just one problem. They had no clue who the victim was. We have to do our job, and we have to find out who did they kill. It had been 15 years since this alleged murder. Was it still possible to unearth the truth? I used to watch um, the Unsolved Mystery shows, and I often thought about calling because I was like, "This this is not right. How can a person get killed and no one knows anything? I'm Jake Halpern, and this is Deep Cover, The Nameless Man. Listen wherever you get your podcasts. And if you want to hear the entire season right now, ad-free, subscribe to Pushkin Plus on our Apple Podcast show page or on pushkin.fm slash plus. Plus.